Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. Joining us today is Andy Doe. Andy, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me back on the recently relaunched show. Do you want to tell our listeners at home where you're from and what you do for a living, please? <laughs> well, I'm from England, and I help artists and institutions to do interesting things with music and technology. I emailed you last week, Andy, to say that we had brought the podcast back, and you, were, of course, were delighted, and you sent congratulations, flowers and chocolates and champagne. And I said, would you like to be on the show? Because you, you are the guest we've had the most often on the show, and our listeners really enjoy hearing you on the show. So I said to you, what do you want to talk about? And you came up with a perfect topic, algorithms. Algorithms. We keep hearing about algorithms, how they're determining what music we listen to, how algorithms might be the future of the music industry, algorithmically generated playlists. Could you at least first disabuse us of the idea that the term algorithm is proof that Al Gore invented the internet? I have no position on whether or not Al Gore invented the internet, but an algorithm in this context really just means a way of working something out. So it's not a term that's heavily loaded with a, a great deal of values. It's not a good or an evil thing. It's, it's a way of calculating something. The term algorithm actually comes from the medieval Latin algorithmus in the late 17th century, denoting the Arabic or decimal notation of numbers. Oh, yeah, so it's not proof that Al Gore invented the internet, is what you're saying. <laughs> An algorithm, though, is like a, is like a formula. It's yeah. like a, a set of factors, and you apply it to a known thing, and then you might get an unknown, a thing you didn't know before. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah, that is that is what we're talking about. That is algorithms in this context, and uh, algorithms can be used to recommend music. They can be used to predict whether or not music will be successful. And they can be used to compose music. I think one way of looking at an algorithm at its simplest formulation is a flowchart. Do you like The Grateful Dead, yes or no? If yes, then there's a chance that you'll like, say, Bob Dylan or Fish. And if no, then it's go directly to jail, do not collect $200. But it's, it's a series of if thens and sometimes with three or four possibilities but it's not complex calculations it's not multiplication it's really yes and no answers all throughout the, the determination of the algorithm well potentially um but a lot of the time what you're doing is so you you might for example in a recommendations algorithm you might score the likelihood that someone who likes track a will like tracks b c d and e you know, you might you might give each of those a numerical score, and then, based on whether or not uh, you're looking at track A, recommend track B, C, D, or E. And and I know from following you on Twitter that, that you've been having a certain amount of algorithm rage at Apple Music lately for their not wholly human seeming recommendations. Yes. So when you go to the For You page on Apple Music. You see these, I don't know what the term is, these little blocks of four records. 
And so they're going to say, because you like this, and then they recommend four records. The example that I cited in last week's show was a recommendation I got uh, because I'm into the Jay Giles band. It recommended The Pretenders Break Up the Concrete, which is a reasonably recent Pretenders album. Uh, the album Lone Justice by Lone Justice, Patti Smith iTunes Originals, and Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, none of which seem to me to be connected in any way to the Jay Giles band. Now, what I would expect is that I would see, you know, I don't know, maybe some R&B artists, maybe some other 80s pop music or something like that, but nothing like that shows up. I get it when you see something like, because you like Jethro Tull, you might like Pink Floyd and Yes and, and other type bands like that and that's because well it's the same genre of music from about the same era and uh, you know if, if you're of a certain age you probably if you listen to the aqualung album for example then you're probably aware of other prog rock albums of that era but the algorithm doesn't always work that way it may be that the, what that algorithm is is assuming here is not that you are of a certain age or that you have grown up with a certain set of shared experiences it's not it's not identifying you as a Jay Giles band fan and then extrapolating from that what it can assume about you because that's not how it works. It just thinks you've got terrible taste in music and is trying to suggest some other bad music. <laughs> okay, hold on. Here's the most recent really bad one I had. Because you listen to Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. So it recommends Before the Flood by Bob Dylan and the band. I'm not sure I see any connection. The White Album by The Beatles, Zero Connection, Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads, this being the movie soundtrack version, Tenuous Connection, and Faith by The Cure. And I would say that that's a good connection uh, about the same period. You would have heard them in the same clubs or on the same radio stations. But Dylan and The Beatles with orchestral maneuvers in the dark, there's no reason. Okay, so uh, having been one of the humans at Apple that recommended music to people for for quite a few years i could explain a little bit about how they work and what the thinking is behind them streaming services particularly uh but also also the the download stores they they make their money by keeping you listening to music right they they want you to keep discovering new music listening to to new music not getting bored of stuff and so what they tend to do because they have a very large amount of data on user behavior is they tend to try to write an algorithm that tries to predict what you would listen to next based on your past listening behavior and the past listening behavior of all the other people. And if you look at Netflix as an example of a very successful version of this predictive algorithm, what Netflix does is it identifies quite narrow subgenres in which things you liked or things that you watched in, in the past belonged and recommends you other things from that subgenre and explains to you that that's why it's recommending them to you. So if you liked romantic comedies with a strong female lead, then it will recommend to you other romantic comedies with a strong female lead until it's run out of those. Uh, if you really enjoyed superhero movies with very little dialogue, then that's what you're going to get recommended more of if you like independent french movies then or if you liked an independent french movie then it's going to recommend other ones to you and it's going to tell you that that's what it's doing so that if it recommends to you a bunch of movies that you've never heard of you're not confused about what they're doing there what they also do at netflix is they recommend to you things they know you've already seen 
because it gives you more faith in the recommendations, in the other recommendations that that they've given. I think um, one of the reasons that they, it's exactly why they do it at Apple Music. They say, the reason we're showing you these four albums is because you like these things. But it- Right, but that is less successful. And that is less successful because there are way more albums than there are movies. Because albums don't fit into quite such neat niches as movies do. It's harder to categorize them into so many concrete categories. And, and even for many artists throughout their career, if you compare Bob Dylan's early records with his later records, if you compare Miles in the 50s to Miles in the 80s, you can't really fit them in the same niche. Right. And those, those niches are, in any case, not a terribly good predictor of whether somebody will like another album based on, on a first. Because there are genres of music in which there are vicious feuds, in which people take a side for this Britpop band and not that Britpop band or this hip-hop artist and not that hip-hop artist and the more similar they sound the more vicious the rivalry so subgenre is not always a tremendously good good predictor so what they use instead is they use sales data people who bought this also bought and it has a kind of transparency to it a kind of says you understand why it's showing this to you but it also frequently gives away how poor a predictor that kind of user behavior is for whether or not you're going to like some music because what it what it's going to show you is other really successful albums even if even if those albums are not very well connected so for example uh if there's a period instruments recording of a mozart symphony that you really like and you buy that record or you listen to that record a lot and there may be another period instruments recording of Mozart symphonies that's that's clearly a a better match than anything else in the in the store, anything else on Apple Music. But instead, what they'll recommend to you is a Taylor Swift record because there are so few people bought either of those specialist niche things that the stronger correlation they have is that lots of people who listen to Mozart symphonies have kids and their kids are buying Taylor Swift on their account or whatever. I think one of the things I find frustrating is that when they display these, this is why you'll like this, I understand that they, for the casual listener, it, it, they need a reference point. They say, well, why are you recommending this? Because it's related to you know something you've listened to before. But I'd almost prefer them not to tell me why they're recommending these 16 records. Just show me the 16 records that I might find interesting. You don't have to justify it. You know, that would, but I understand how that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah, so my, my problem with this particular selection is because that they said it was because I listened to Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, right? which doesn't make sense. Now, if I look today, one of the four blocks is just some jazz for today. I've been listening to a lot of jazz, and they're recommending two blocks of jazz today. Another thing that Apple Music keeps doing is they recommend records and they say, because you listen to Tinder sticks. I have never heard of Tinder sticks. I have never listened to Tinder sticks. I had to look them up and they keep doing this. And this, this, this is just evil. Ah, but this could be, this, this is one of the ways in which algorithms sow the seeds of their own undoing. Because if you've at any point listened to some automated playlist, uh, if you've ever left your computer unattended 
and my cats don't listen to tinder sticks either <laughs> right but but maybe maybe at some point your cats did or maybe maybe there is some some odd glitch in the system where it's got stuck on one id instead of another or something for whatever reason it's begun thinking that you are a fan of this this band and now it's starting to show you other artists on the periphery of that band's universe which if you were to follow those recommendations would begin to reinforce its notion that this was the locus of your musical taste and it would never it has no method of going back and checking whether or not those initial conditions were false and there are countless examples outside of music where where this has happened well it should because you can unlike records you can you can love or you can dislike things and it recommends hip-hop and rap often in new releases although now it's hardly showing any new releases and so i've always marked that i dislike some of those recommendations if it recommends in one of those quartets of records something that i really don't like i do set dislike to, to try and refine the algorithm did you dislike tinder sticks well there are too many tinder sticks records to dislike yeah but it might be worth it might be worth your time <laughs> yeah well what you what you got to do Kirk, is you got to you got to listen to these tinder sticks records and find out whether or not in fact you like them <laughs> well see i'm wondering if this is like a sponsored recommendation wow that tinder sticks is paying like a per click from apple amount of money to apple we, yeah we didn't exactly do that kind of thing in my day yeah but i cannot vouch for their behavior in yeah. in subsequent years I, I wouldn't expect something like that to happen but uh, so one thing that you point out is that the algorithm is, is it's kind of based on you know let's use the buzzwords big data artificial intelligence machine learning all they mean is that, like someone's throwing stuff in a database and is applying rules to it to determine how this is interpreted an algorithm does not learn on its own it's based on some guy sitting in front of a computer coding with headphones on, listening, deciding what's going to happen. Okay, so at its simplest, an algorithm might be a set of rules that a programmer has, has listed to make recommendations. But once we get into machine learning, then the computer has begun to write its own rules for determining or working towards the condition of success. So in machine learning, what you're doing is you're telling the computer what you want the outcome to be and you're letting it determine what its rules are and this can be quite problematical so take the example of the uh, the facebook algorithm right facebook used to have human editors control what was trending and they were accused of being biased against conservative sources and so they handed this over to an algorithm and there's no transparency into what that algorithm is doing how it's basing its decisions but clearly what's happened is that that algorithm was optimized for engagement rather than truth and had and was terrible at telling whether something was made up or not and that had a tremendously negative impact on the way the world is today okay for the scope of this discussion let's stay with music because then we get into some really grotty territory is the algorithm the future of music, at least for streaming, algorithmically created playlists that attempt to add enough variety and change often enough so people stay engaged and not get bored, yet end up recommending the lowest common denominator? I just want to say that that's how radio has worked for 50 years. It's yes, pretty but much with human beings. Right. With a combination of human beings and the billboard charts. 
Because when you would see something going up on the charts with a bullet, you'd want to add it to your playlist, regardless of what you thought of it. But you not only would be looking at the Billboard charts, you'd be looking at local sales, you'd be looking at request, listener requests, things like that, like what's popular. But still, it would take a mental algorithm to put all this information together. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but you would then play everybody the same music. Wasn't the initial promise of streaming music the fact that you would get these personalized recommendations, that it would be... Don't you remember when Apple actually used the word musicologist, that the HomePod was going to tailor music for you? Pandora used the Music Genome Project and essentially said, you can design your own radio stations based on three or four songs, and it would use the qualities that they had assigned to each of those songs to do that kind of predicting. And it, I think that's why a lot of, I liked Pandora for a little while, because it would recommend things that I did like that I wasn't that familiar with. Yeah, and also you could understand why Pandora was recommending things to you, because Pandora did put in the effort to follow the, the Netflix model of recommendations. They would they would split music up into hundreds and hundreds of subgenres that are not really even subgenres, but they would they would generate this very, very dense metadata and make recommendations on that basis. And I think it was a very effective tool, very effective tool. So if you listen to playlists on a streaming music service, you have two options. You have either the algorithmically generated playlist and you have the human curated playlists. But we discussed on another episode of this show how little the people who create playlists are actually paid, the humans who curate the playlists. So if they're getting paid, I don't know, 50 bucks to do a playlist, can they do a better job than the algorithm? Or is the algorithm actually going to be more efficient because it's not going to be trying to rush the playlist to get onto the next one to make more money? Well, we certainly pay people more than $50 a playlist at Apple. But the difference that you'll see between a, a human-generated playlist that's done in a hurry and a algorithmic playlist is that a human generated playlist that's done in a hurry will pick the most obvious things you know if i've got to do the jay giles band playlist then i'm going to figure out you know what what were their hits okay um what are the what are the big b-sides what are the things that fans would know look at what's popular make sure that i'm not missing out anything that's popular which means i might include things which are only temporarily popular or are popular for some random reason because they're on some film soundtrack or something but i'm going to I'm going to bungle that stuff in there, make sure that's covered. And then somewhere down the bottom, out in the weeds of the, the kind of discovery section of this playlist, I'm, I'm going to add a few tracks almost at random, but for which I have some justification that I could give, give to my boss. What the algorithm is going to do, it's going to miss some of those obvious things. It's going to include some slightly random things, but it may get closer to what the average of people actually listen to, which might not be what any one individual wants to listen to. Because it depends what rule you've given the algorithm. And the rules that people give algorithms are usually stupid. And this is this is one of the one of the flaws with relying on quite naive computational systems to make complex decisions. Okay, so what's the future of algorithms in music? Are we going to continue seeing this Tinder sticks effect? Or are they able to refine these algorithms somehow? Because it looks to me like Apple Music is just a bunch of rubes with the algorithms that they use to recommend records. Yeah, I think that we're definitely going to see a mixture of good and bad algorithmic recommendations going forward. 
I think that we're going to have to pay close attention to the impact of these these recommendations on people's listening habits and on the the economy that these platforms support. What tends to happen if you if you try to make an algorithm, if you use use machine learning to replicate a human judgment, then you import into that algorithm all of the biases already present in the system. If a music store historically has a bias against a certain type of music, or if the, the industry in general has a bias against a certain type of music, then that will be repeated in the in the outputs of the algorithms that are looking at the same same set of inputs. And so what tends to happen over time is that these these algorithms will double down on those on those biases and amplify them. And that can be quite damaging to the ecosystems in which they they operate. And it's also worth bearing in mind that there is a tremendous lack of transparency in getting a computer to make decisions. If a person makes decisions, their boss can summon them when there's a complaint and say, why did you do this? Whereas if the computer is making all of the decisions, especially if the computer is is, is effectively, in, in, in the case of machine learning, using an algorithm that it wrote itself, then the computer cannot and will not explain to you why it is that it's chosen what it's chosen. And that's a dangerous situation to get into if you find that it is systematically suppressing certain types of music. My dream is to have a customized music valet that selects music for me that I will automatically like. And it doesn't really sound like that's going to happen anytime soon. So, of course, there's tremendous potential in providing customized recommendations to people in in identifying the, the things that, that only you and a tiny other niche of people like and, and which you would never discover by consuming mass media, but which a, a tailored recommendation can, can steer you in the direction of. And there, there are wonderful discoveries to be made there. And there is, there is hope for the things that never make it above the fold in algorithmic recommendations. But there's also a danger that things will get systematically squashed in ways for which there is there is no real accountability or mechanism for redress and so we have to be careful we have to demand transparency of those organizations using what is after all our data to make judgments about us and our behavior and our tastes and, and what we're going to do and where where we see that where we have that where there are good privacy controls around that we should we should support those organisations, I think, and uh, and enjoy the the better experience that they can offer. Thank you very much, Andy, for joining us and elucidating your thoughts on algorithms. We hope to see you again on the show. Thanks. Thank you very much. It's now time for our next tracks, Kirk. What have you got this week? Last week, you tweeted something, an article from a gentleman named Keith J. Forty on Medium called Preparing the Post-Album Music Industry. And this person writes that he encounters so much new music, so many new albums, that it's just not possible for him to fall in love with an album the way he used to. And he says that he just doesn't have the time to invest in repeated listens the way albums, good ones, truly deserve. And it's really funny because 
just around that time, I had started listening to a record that I have been listening to, not quite continuously since then, but I've been listening to it three or four times a day. It's the latest recording by the Brad Meldow Trio called Seymour Reads the Constitution. Now, the title comes from a dream that Meldow had that Philip Seymour Hoffman was reading the United States Constitution to him, and he woke up and he wrote down the melody and created a track like that. Like all of Brad Meldow's albums, it's jazz. What, what's the word? Accessible jazz? It's not atonal. It's very melodic. All of his studio albums feature the standard sort of jazz piano. This is a piano trio, piano, bass, and drums. The standard jazz piano trio where you get the melody that comes in a couple of times, and then it starts to riff a little bit. And then a couple of tracks, the bassist and drummer get some mini solos. And all, all of the tracks are kind of long. The shortest one is 541, and the longest one is 10 minutes and 7 seconds. There are three tracks by Mel Dow. There are covers by Frederick Lowe, Elmo Hope, Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney, and Sam Rivers. The El I never heard of Elmo Hope, but the song D-Da has one of those Thelonious Monk things. Da -da 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 you know, that kind of type thing. And it's like, it's catchy. And I've been listening to this record over and over and over. And I keep putting it on when I'm in the kitchen, when I'm at work, when I'm up in the bedroom. And this is the first time in a long time that I've been listening to an album continuously like this. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Brad Meldow, and I've liked a lot of his other records, but this is the, the first one in years that really grabbed me. Funny you should say that, because the same thing has happened to me with an actual relatively new uh, album by uh, a band. Uh, the band is Ko Ko Mo. It's spelled K-O space K-O space M-O. They are a French duo who sing in English and play what I would think is um, Anglo-American rock. But it's more like Led Zeppelin. It has a Led Zeppelin sort. It's very riff-based. Now, they're like the White Stripes or the Black Keys in that they have only two musicians. And so they're somewhat limited as to what you know, what musically they can do. But this guy, the guy on the guitar, who's also a phenomenal vocalist, um, has, of course, incredible effects and it is an incredible guitarist. And I cannot stop listening to this album. It is just full of great riffing and, and, and great guitar technique, lots of great energy. I was just so surprised that it, it came out a year ago and I didn't hear anything about it. My wife stumbled on it because she listens to Radio France. And that's where we get we hear a lot of esoteric music, which reminds me, I have an, an aside question. Didn't you once tell me that the French government has some kind of rule about uh, uh, broadcast facilities have to play a certain percentage of, of French-based music? There, there's a quota for radio play. And uh, initially, what would happen is the radio stations would play the French songs overnight. But then I think the quota changed, so it had to be a certain amount per hour. I'm not sure if it's half a third and I'm not sure if it has to be in French, because a lot of French artists will play in English to try and get international exposure. But I don't know how many other countries have a quota like this, but the French do. And they claim that it has maintained French artists and kept them going. Well, this band, Kokomo, sings in English. So, uh, yeah. But it, it has a French feel. If you think about them being French, I mean, I don't know what that means exactly, but it has a French feel. I do listen to French popular music, so I, you know, I think I know what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm really excited by this album. This came out. This is this album is called Technicolor Life. It came out in 2018. They have a new album coming out in a couple of weeks. It might even be out by the time this podcast is released. 
But I'm very excited about it. And it's funny that I think that gentleman was right in the article that it is difficult to find something that you like, something that you're not burned out on, something that you haven't heard before, whether it's the same artist or uh, the same genre. It's, it's so exciting when you hear something that's refreshing that you do want to hear it and you do invest the time to listen to it. Because uh, uh, like you, I just don't have the time. To, to, to do this, to spend with, with music. And I'm, I'm just so glad I found this because it, it's, it's quite rewarding to listen to over and over again. It's not just that, though. And you've mentioned earlier that your experience working in radio means that when you start listening to a track or a song on Apple Music or whatever, you're already thinking about the next one. So when you can actually sit down and live with an album for a while, you stop thinking about the next one and you really appreciate the music more. This is something we've lost. You know, I remember... Back in the early 80s when I bought, I don't know, um, some Brian Eno records, right? And I listened to them, you know, each one of them over and over and over because I had only 100 records or 150 records. So, you know, the new stuff comes in and it takes its place and, and you need that time to digest it for it to sort of fit into the pantheon of music that you really like. And we've lost that. And I, I would much rather find records that are good enough for me to do that more often and then just keep flitting around through some algorithmically created playlist. It's funny that you say that because we, in the old days, we had a limited number of records, but now we have really unlimited time. We can listen to music, not just in our bedrooms or our living rooms. We can take the music with us. But in spite of the fact that we can do that, we still don't have enough time to listen to the things that we like. This was episode number 141 of the next track. What do you call a number like that that's a palindrome? I don't know. I'm going to go take a nap. Your comments on this episode are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a rating or review, recommend us to a few of your pals. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.